listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Are you happy this morning? God is good and all the time. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is where we're going to be. We're going to read verses 3 through 6. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. And we are so excited to celebrate Mother's Day with you. We had a full crowd in our first service. Glad to see you this morning. And those of you watching online, thank you for being here this morning. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse number 3. Let's stand as we get the blood flowing on this five-hour Mother's Day marathon sermon. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested Jesus by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You may be seated. How many of you love putting puzzles together? Me neither. I want you to imagine with me that you and your spouse, or for those of you single, you and your future spouse, if it's the Lord's will, are put into a room and you are given a 15,000 piece jigsaw puzzle to put together. You are locked in this room and you cannot get out until it's put together. And you have no idea what this puzzle is of. There's no box top. One person will probably die in that room. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Because it's very hard... To put a puzzle of 15,000 pieces together. But if you don't have an idea what the picture is supposed to be that you're putting together, it's going to make it even more difficult. Well, that's what happens with a lot of people when it comes to their marriage. Is that they, they feel like that they're put together with somebody and they're told to put together the puzzle of marriage. And they have all these different things that happen in marriage. You have children. You have a house. You have a career. You have, you have money issues. You, you have... Uh, fitness and health, and, and you, you have conflict and personality quirks. And the thing about it is, is that you have all these pieces, and, and you're wondering, how do they all fit together? Is there a design for my marriage? Because I feel like right now, we're just kind of going nowhere, and, and I don't really see the big picture. God, why do you want me to be with this person until one of us dies? Well, God has a design for your marriage. And today, maybe you're single here this morning, and you're like, what does this sermon have to do with me? Well, I hope that if it's, if it's God's will and it's your desire to be married, that one day when you are married, that these words that come from my mouth and from the Word of God will help you in your marriage one day. Uh, for those of you that have been married for a long, long time, our church just this week is celebrating two couples in our church. One has been married for 62 years, the other for 67 years. <laughs> I talked to the one that was married for 67 years, and I said, you know, I've been told the longer you're with somebody, the more you start looking like them. And he said, yeah, my wife is scared. 
But what do we do with this? Well, we're going to, over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about what God's design is for marriage, how marriages break, and how the gospel can help us have marriages that are not only happy, but ultimately holy. And we're looking here in Matthew 19. So if this is your first time here, we've been going through this text for quite some time. We're going to focus on those three verses this morning. But what we're in the middle of is that Jesus is in a uh, kind of a little bit of a debate or a question and answering session with this group called the Pharisees, which was the religious establishment. They wanted to trap Jesus, but Jesus wanted to teach them. And what Jesus does in Matthew 19 is brilliant because what he does is he sets the course and lets us as believers know where Jesus stood on certain issues like singleness, like uh, like uh, gender, like sexuality, uh, like divorce and remarriage. And then even today, we're going to look at what Jesus believes and thinks about marriage. And here's what I want you to leave with this morning. Jesus in this text is going to teach us that God has designed marriage to be a lifelong committed relationship between one man and one woman that points us to his love for us. Three things we're going to see about marriage. The first thing is this, is that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. In verse number five, Jesus here uh, says, uh, when he is asked about this idea of divorce and remarriage and divorce for any cause, Jesus grounds his thinking uh, and gives his answer based on God's original design. And he quotes here Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And what we learn about marriage in this moment, and as we read through these past few weeks, this text, is that marriage was not an invention made by man. It was not some sort of cultural invention or some sort of patriarchal institution to subjugate women. Marriage was God's idea. Marriage was God's ultimate plan for human flourishing on the earth and a way to multiply and fill the earth with his image bearers that would reflect his glory to the entire universe. And so as you read Genesis 1, you look at Adam and you look at Eve, and one of the things you learn is that there's a three-step process that, that God has for a man and a woman. The first thing that we see as you just read the Bible is that God wants a guy to grow up, get a job, worship God, and take care of himself. Then you see that this man uh, pursues a noble woman in a noble way, and then that man marries a woman, and they become one flesh. So in God's way of progression, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby carriage. All right. Now, our world kind of has an opposite view. Our world says this, hook up, shack up, and then break up. But God has a different plan. He has a different design. And what you see here is that Jesus says that a man shall leave his father and his mother. There is a leaving, and then there is this cleaving. There is this holding fast. And to be married, you need to be mature enough to leave your home. That is, you have to be mature enough to leave your home physically. You've got to physically get out the house. Amen? You've got to be able to mature, uh, leave your, uh, your family, uh, even relationally. You, there, there must be no longer what my parents say. This must be us. The relationship that you have with your spouse has to take precedence and priority over your extended family. You have to be mature enough emotionally so that when you're going through a bad situation or a good situation, your first call is to your spouse, not your parents. You have to be uh, mature enough financially so that you don't depend on your parents to support you. You have to make your own way. You have to live in your own by your own means. And for most people, you're going to be poor for a long time. Amen? And you need to be mature enough spiritually where you can have a faith of your own and make your own decisions. And so here God says that when it's that time that that man and that woman are mature enough to leave and to cleave, they are to be together. That word hold fast or the, the King James word cleave can literally be kind of 
understood is to be glued to. You know, I'm sticking with you because I'm made out of glue. And so, you know, I told my wife, if you ever leave me, I'm going with her. <laughs> and so this word cleaving, to be glued to, is also a word that means to make a vow or even to be united in a covenant. See, marriage is a covenant. And what is a covenant? A covenant is a public vow of faithfulness. A covenant is promises, okay? It's a set of promises between two people that bind them together. So a marriage covenant is a set of promises that a man and a wife make to each other in front of others and before God. Now, for those of you in the room that have been married, those of you that maybe have gone to a marriage and gone to a wedding, the marriage ceremony is less about your present state of feelings and more about your promise to love and be faithful in the future. And so marriage and romance will get you into a, get you into a marriage. Uh, love and romance will get you into a marriage. You know, as the, as the great uh, theological pastor said in The Princess Bride, love is the reason for marriage. It's a great theological movie. Feelings will get you into a marriage. But it's going to be the promises you make to each other that are going to keep you in your marriage. Tim Keller says that when you say your vows at your wedding day, those are appointments you are making with yourself. That five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, twenty years from now, I am promising to love you, to cherish you, to honor you, to serve you in good times or bad, in riches or poverty, and to be true and loyal to you until death do us part. All of those promises are future promises. And here's the deal, Pickles. You don't really need a promise to stick with somebody in the good times. See, when things are good, you don't really need a covenant because you don't feel the need to run. But when things are bad, when, when you're sick, when things are going rocky, that's when you need promises. And it's going to be the promises you make to each other that are going to be the glue that binds you together. So when Jesus says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and leave his wife or leave his family and cleave to his wife. This, this glue that's going to bind them together are the promises that they make to each other. And so what makes the marriage covenant different than any other relationship you have is that it is a covenant relationship that is a glue that binds you together with promises in the future. And it is much different than a consumer relationship. See, in a consumer relationship, the relationship lasts only if that relationship is beneficial to both parties. And so that means that you only stay connected to the other person as long as they're meeting your particular needs at a cost that's acceptable to you. And so in a consumer relationship, there is no obligation to stay in that relationship. In the consumer relationship, the individual's needs take precedence and are more important than the relationship. I'll give you an example of a consumer relationship. Eating in a restaurant. Now, I'm one of these people that I go to certain restaurants. I kind of have a rotation. And when I go to every restaurant, I normally get the same thing. Anybody else just get the same thing everywhere you go? Like, I don't like to go outside. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. I found what I like, so why not get it every time I go and I go? Because if I wanted something different, I'd go to a different restaurant. <laughs> and so if I find a restaurant that I like, I'll keep going there. I'm a loyal person. But... If the food gets bad, if the service gets bad, if the price gets high, 
or if they switch to Pepsi, I'm out. Can I get a witness? Because it doesn't matter who you are, how good your food is. If you don't have Coke Zero or Diet Coke, no bueno. I had a restaurant owner who's a friend of mine. I told him, I'm not coming anymore because you switched. You went to the dark side. You went to PepsiCo. I don't care if it's cheaper food. Anyway, I don't want you to get into all the nuances. But what I'm saying, I'm being funny here, is that that's what a consumer relationship is. I will stay loyal to you as long as I get what I want at a cost that's acceptable to me. But if the circumstances change, I'm out. And that's what makes marriage different than any other relationship. Because in a covenant relationship, the good of the relationship should take precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. So when you are married, you, you are to live your life as for the other person. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. And, and then that means that you're going to sacrifice your wants and your needs for what is best for your relationship. So if that means you get a job offer, your dream job that is something that you've always wanted that's going to make a lot of money, but it may relocate you or may make you so busy that it's going to really hurt your marriage, you might not say yes because it's going to be what's best for us, not what's best for me. Now, our society kind of understands that when it comes to the parent-child relationship. Parents will do almost anything for their children, even if it means to sacrifice what they want and what they need so that the kids can do well. But you know what? In God's economy, that kind of sacrificial love, that kind of relationship should not just be a parent-child, but it should be a husband and a wife. But yet our society is, is often like the great songwriter and song singer, Meatloaf, who said, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. And we know what often that that is, is self-sacrifice for the good of us. That we will do anything and everything except if it means sacrificing what I want to make sure that we are healthy. In God's economy and God's understanding of marriage and what Jesus is teaching here in this text is that your marriage must be more important to you than anything and anyone else. No other human being should be more, should get more of your love, your energy, and your commitment than your spouse. In this text, in a patriarchal society that Jesus is speaking of, and, and in the ancient understanding of how family is so important, when God asks a man to leave his father and his mother, as powerful as relationship as that may have been, he is calling them to forge a new relationship that would be even more important and more powerful than the one he had with his parents. Because marriage is a covenant not between a son and a father or a son and a mother or a daughter and her father or a daughter and her mother. It is a, it is a union between a husband and a wife. So what is it? It's a covenant. Secondly, well, what's it for? Marriage is built for companionship. He says in verse 20, in verse number 5, quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore points back to what God says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, where he says, it's not good for man to be alone. 
God created a female, a woman, as a response to human loneliness. And as I shared with you, the ache of loneliness is the one ache that does not arise from sin. So being lonely is not a sin. And so God created Adam a companion. Someone that was his equal, but someone that was different. If you look at the creation narrative, after every day, day one, after God created everything, he says it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. Day five, it was good. Day six, it wasn't that good that man be alone. And he creates woman. And God says it was very good. What makes life from just being good to very good is a woman. And God created a helper fit. Ezer Konegdo. Someone like Adam, but unlike Adam in ways that Adam likes. It is a complementarian relationship. The word helper does not mean less than or subservient to. A helper is someone who provides you help. God is called our helper. But what we see is that there's something in the woman that complements the man and something in the man that complements the woman. A woman by herself is a reflection of the glory of God. Even though broken because of a fallen world of sin, she reflects the glory of God and doesn't need a man to do that. There's something in a man that reflects the image and glory of God, even though it's broken because of sin, that he can reflect God's glory without a woman. But when you put them together, glory, glory. And so they complement the other. They complement the other. By itself, they're good. Together, they're better. I love Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal. You can eat it by itself. It's good by itself. But when you put some cold milk with Cinnamon Toast Crunch, it's a blessing. And one of my favorite parts is after all the Cinnamon Toast Crunch is gone, the milk is the nectar of the gods. Where the two have become one, they complement each other. Chocolate is good, amen? By itself, it's good. I like peanut butter. You put peanut butter and chocolate together, whoo, glory. Better together. Peas and carrots. Beans and cornbread. A Chick-fil-A sandwich. I like it with the pickle. Is good. Chick-fil-A sauce by itself is good. Put it together and the Shekinah glory of God falls down from heaven. And you experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. As you eat the holy bird. <laughs> Compliments. Husband and wife compliment. Jesus says here. Two shall become one. 
the math of marriage is one plus one equals one. I know it sounds weird. The relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and his wife, is unlike any other relationship, and therefore it must be outside of a relationship with God, the primary relationship in your life. The one flesh relationship means that you are now married as a, and you are a single entity. So when God sees Alan and April, he sees one. In marriage, let me go back to that for a second. We don't lose our distinctiveness of who we are as an individual. But in the eyes of God, in a covenant relationship, we're glued together. So he sees us as one. In marriage, your lives are so intertwined in such a way that everything about you becomes one. Your families become one. Your future happiness becomes one. Your successes become one. Your bank accounts should become one. Your emotional lives and your sexual lives where you literally and physically become one. That's a different relationship. It's a companionate relationship. Jonathan Hand in his book, Happiness Hypothesis, talks about two different kinds of love. He talks about passionate love and companionate love. Passionate love is wildly emotional with the elation and pain, with anxiety and relief, with altruism and jealousy. He says that passionate love is like a drug. It increases the serotonin in your brain and gives you a high, but it wears off in time. But he says companionate love is love that grows over time. It may not start out hot. But through mutual affection that's felt by two people where lives are deeply intertwined, there is a bond that comes between them that grows through caregiving and trust and attachment, and it endures and lasts a lifetime. He says that there's a difference between passionate love and companionate love, like there's a difference between a flame that burns out and a vine that grows together over time. In the first few months, passionate love starts out like a fever, hotter than a pepper sprout. But then it quickly goes out just as quick as it came in. It starts hot but ends not. But a collection of vines that grow slowly together produce an almost an impenetrable, unbreakable wall. Even though it's slow and steady, not hot and heavy, it is steady and strong. The word for spouse in the Old Testament is the word help, which can mean special, confident, or even your best friend. And so what I want to commend to you is that God gave you your spouse so that they would be your best friend. In counseling and marriage counseling, and even in my own personal life, if anyone of another gender becomes a better friend to you than your spouse, you're in trouble. Your spouse must be the one you confide in. Your spouse must be the one you trust the most. Your spouse should be the one who walks in when everyone else walks out. See, God created marriage to provide an intimate relationship where you can be fully known, fully loved without rejection. And when you understand that marriage is not a fling, but marriage is a friendship, it helps you look for somebody in a different way. You don't just look for somebody who is physically attractive or financially well off. You look for somebody that's a friend. I remember my first few dates with my wife. Our first date was running. And you say, well, that sounds exciting. Well, I was chasing her. <laughs> You'll catch that in a moment. And I did catch her. But anyway, 
it started off running, and then we walked for three hours. We walked, and we talked in circles, physically, not talking-wise. Our, our third date, we went to the Gaylord Opryland Mills Mall in Nashville, and, and she shared her thoughts on this, and, and her thoughts on parenting, and her thoughts on life, and I shared my thoughts on life, and began to be friends. We hung out. When you see that marriage is about friendship, it helps you look for somebody different. It's marriage and finding a spouse isn't about swiping left or swiping right. It's about finding somebody that you don't mind hanging out with when you're old and ugly and your kids are out of the house. Right? One day you're not going to be hot. Men, you're going to trade your upper chest for lower drawers one day. Women, you're always beautiful. Amen. One day the kids are going to grow up. They're going to get out of the house and they're going to hate you. Just kidding. They're going to move. They're going to move out. What are you going to have to do? I tell my wife all the time, honey, we got to start finding hobbies other than the kids. Right? Because one day we're going to sit and look at each other. And if we don't know each other, we're going to say, who are you? I don't know where I'm going with this, but it sounds great. Here's where I'm trying to go, is that the foundation, the, the first connection that you can have with anybody is a spiritual connection. Over these next couple of weeks, we're going to be using a pyramid called the marriage pyramid. I learned this in seminary from the late, great Dr. Bill Cotrer. And, and it's, think of it like an, as a food pyramid. Uh, in a food pyramid, normally the biggest thing, the bottom thing is the thing you should eat the most. That's fruits, that's vegetables, those are type things like that. The things at the top are like mayonnaise and, and, and bad things that you shouldn't eat. Um, and so what you should do is you should eat more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff, but most of us kind of get it inverted, right? And so we eat a lot of mayonnaise. Um, but when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, uh, the foundation is spiritual, right? And the spiritual then bleeds into the relational, and then relational leads, bleeds into the, to the physical. And in a marriage situation, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, me and my wife or my wife, you know, we're not intimate in, in physical relationship. And I say, well... How do you guys talk often? Do you guys communicate often? Well, not really. Are you a jerk? He says, well, some days. I said, well, why are you, what are you surprised? But why are you a jerk? Well, it could be there's something deeper. It could be because you're angry or it could be because there's greed there or it could be because you're wanting to control things. It's spiritual. Most, if not all, problems in your marriage have spiritual roots and foundations. And when you don't have, if you're not on the same page spiritually with the person you're married to, you're going to have problems. And this is why I'm going to say this over and over until I'm dying. And I'm going to tell, I tell my kids this all the time. Never date or never marry someone who isn't a believer. Amen? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And here's why. Because you're not going to be compatible. It's like two people rowing a boat going two different directions. It may give you something to do, but you're going to go nowhere. And it's going to end up in a capsize, in a, in a, in a shipwreck. Now listen, I'm going to talk to parents for a second and grandparents. If your children or grandchildren come to you and they say, Hey, look at so-and-so. You meet so-and-so. Boy, she's beautiful or he's hot or whatever. The first question you should ask as a parent is this. Is that person a Christian? 
is Jesus the Lord of their life? Do they have a real relationship with Jesus? And if, if your kids or grandkids look at you and say, well, I don't know, you say, well, you better find out. And secondly, if it says no, then you say, danger, danger, Will Robinson. That's not who you need to marry. Well, some people say, well, pastor, you know what? He, he's interested in church, and he'll come to me, and, and he'll sit next to me, uh, and, and maybe, maybe I can win him to Jesus. Well, listen, then break up with him and share Jesus with him and see him get saved and get discipled, and then maybe you can date him. But until that happens, no. Amen. I'm telling you, it's not going to work. It's not, why? Because you can't. Here's the problem. It, being a Christian and being in marriage, when you're a married person, you open up and you share the deepest parts of yourself. And if you're committed to Jesus and your partner is not, you may open up all of your heart to them and they're not going to understand and you're going to feel violated. Because marriage is about companionship, not hooking up. Marriage is a covenant. It's companionship. But it's also a picture of Christ in the church. Now, this is a big picture. In the next two Sundays, we're going to get into really nitty-gritty. But Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And guess who else quotes him? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 quotes Genesis 2, 24. And Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to take what Jesus in Genesis says, and he's going to teach us, and he's going to teach the church of Ephesus that the first marriage and all marriages give a picture of God's love for his people. But God designed marriage and everything that goes in it and with it to give us a taste of God's love for us. Your best marriage, your best day as a married person is just a foretaste, a small taste of God's love for you. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Again, Paul here, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they too shall become, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. In the Greek, literally the word is it's a mega mystery. A mysterion, a mystery, mystery in, G, in Paul's day was an, an extraordinarily great, wonderful, profound truth that only could be understood by the help of something or someone else. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. How can we understand the mystery of marriage only by the help of somebody else? Who's the somebody else? If you read the context of Ephesians 5, it's the Holy Spirit. The divine mystery of marriage and the purpose of God in uniting one man and one woman for one lifetime is only to be understood as a picture of the relationship of Christ and His church, His people. God says, you want to know how much my son loves his people? Look at marriage. I mean, even, even before the fall of humanity, when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And so therefore, our marriages, although not perfect, picture the gospel to the world, to our children, and to ourselves. God loves painting pictures. Baptism is a picture. Baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of the believer, that I was dead in my sins, but God raised me up to walk in newness of life. And marriage is a, is a picture. It's a picture of Christ's love for his people, and it's a picture of his people's love for Christ. So husbands, if you desert your wife, you show the world that Christ deserts his people. If you ignore your wife, you show that Christ wants nothing to do with his people. If you look at pornography or cheat on your wife, you're showing that Christ is not loyal to his people. If you don't care for your wife above your own needs and wants, then you're showing the world that Christ doesn't care for us. 
If you're hateful and hurtful, you're saying that Jesus is hateful and hurtful. Wives, if you sleep around on your husband, you're showing the world that Christ is not satisfying enough for his people. If you talk bad about your husband and disrespect him, you show the world that Christ is not worthy of your respect. If you do not follow your husband, then you are showing the world that Christ is not worth following. Understand this, any deviation, any distortion, any perversion of or from God's design for marriage is a big deal to God. Could you imagine that somebody went to Italy, went to the Mona Lisa, took a Sharpie out and put a mustache on the Mona Lisa? What do you think would happen? Well, one, the guy or the gal would be arrested. Two, it would make national news and everyone would be aghast that this masterpiece has been defaced. Do you imagine going to Florence, Italy and seeing the statue of David that was carved out by Michelangelo and that somebody cut the head of David off and the arms of David or cut the legs of David off and, and put graffiti? There would be world news. This great art, this great masterpiece has been defaced. Well, as big of a deal as, as the Mona Lisa or the, the David statue is, there's a greater picture that's more beautiful and more wonderful, and that is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ seen in your marriage. And so, any deviation, distortion of that is a slap in God's face. This is why God hates divorce. This is why divorce or sex before marriage or same-sex marriages are wrong. Because it's a deviation, it's a distortion of God's design. You may say, well, a mustache on Mona Lisa wouldn't look bad. Well, it would look bad to the guy who painted it. What our marriage pictures is what we need to make our marriage work. The gospel teaches us that Jesus gave himself up and died to himself to save us. Our response is, is that we give ourselves up. We die to ourselves. We repent and believe and submit our lives to his will day by day. The gospel is what gives us the pattern and the power to make our marriages work. Tim Keller says that the reason that marriage is so painful yet so wonderful is because it reflects the gospel which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. And yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Listen, you're more sinful than you ever, than you could even imagine. You think everybody else is messed up? You're messed up. But yet you're more loved. And so the gospel gives me the power to forgive when I've been wronged. Whatever anybody does to you on earth pales in comparison to what you have done to God. And if God can forgive you for what you have done against Him, then you should be able to forgive others for what they've done against you. The gospel gives me humility to show me that I am sinful, and it gives me the humility to say to my spouse, I am sorry when I have wronged them. I'm telling you something, some of the most powerful words you can say to your spouse is, I'm sorry I am wrong. For some of you that are married, if you heard that from your spouse, you'd fall over. The gospel gives me the patience I need to love my spouse in the bad times, in the poor times, and the sick times. Because if God can love me when I was bad, if God can love me when I was sick, if God can love me when I was poor, 
And God will give me the grace to do that for my spouse. The gospel gives me grace to overcome the difficulties in life. The gospel gives me and my wife the common mission that keeps us moving forward together. And the mission is reaching men, women, boys, and girls for Jesus Christ and expanding his kingdom. If we've got nothing else in common, we've got Jesus in common. And the gospel gives me a vision for the future in the midst of the uncertainty of life. My wife right now is reading a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. I commend it to you. I mean, I agree with everything in the book, but as you read the book, it's a wonderful book. And I've just heard my wife all throughout the week say, tell me this about heaven and that about heaven, and she's excited about heaven, and she says, you know what? I can't wait. And I says, well, don't get in a hurry. But we're heading there together. One day. That's the beauty of marriage. Two becoming one, leaving and cleaving in a covenant committed lifelong relationship, one man, one woman, to show the picture of God's love. A few years ago, a long time ago, actually, it seems like, when my kids were little, we got those big old puzzles. They're like 20 pieces, but they're those big, thick ones, like almost wood, but not wood. And, and we were just putting it together. And it was, it was a Mickey Mouse picture. It was a picture of Mickey Mouse. He's like the, the little version, you know. And we were putting that thing together, or I was, and they were watching. And we were putting this piece in, and they were just so excited to put the piece in. And we got to the very end, and there was one piece missing. It was right in the smack dab center of this puzzle. It was the face of Mickey Mouse. Now, if the whole puzzle is about Mickey Mouse, and we got the whole, I mean, this is not, I'm not, this is not a preacher story. This is a real story. This didn't just happen. This just really did happen. It's not made up. And so what did we do? Well, we started looking around, or at least I started looking around, and I thought, well, I don't know where this puzzle is. We went here, we went there, we went everywhere, we went again. We want to finish this puzzle. Maybe when the kids ate it, I don't know. <laughs> Couldn't find it, gave up, tore the puzzle apart, put it in its box, and threw it away. Because what good is a puzzle if it's missing the centerpiece? Some of you in your marriage right now, you can't figure it out. You're trying to find the missing piece. And because you can't find that missing piece, you're searching and searching and searching, and you can't find it. You just said, you know what, this thing's over. So let's just rip it up, and let's just throw it away. Could it be, could it be that the one thing missing in your marriage is the greatest need for your marriage? See, your greatest need in your marriage is not to read more books. Not to go to more marriage seminars, not to have more money or a better sex life. The greatest need for your marriage is to have Jesus Christ in the center of it. And what may be missing in your marriage is the only one who can give you strength that you need in your marriage. Whenever I do wedding sermons, which are typically slow, short, uh, because... I've been told that I sound like Charlie Brown's teacher when I do them. Nobody listens to them. But what I say, and I, I wrote this down a few years ago, but here's what I say at a typical wedding ceremony. I say, God's design for marriage 
is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Our marriages point us to the fact we desperately need a Savior. We do not have the resources or the ability to love our spouses the way that Christ loves us, but if you want to stay together and love one another, then Christ must be at the center of your life. He must be the glue that holds you together. As you both grow more like Him, you will both grow closer together. My wife and I have been married for quite some time, not as long as others. There have been good days, been a few bad days. There have been no rich days, but there's been quite a few poor days. A few sick days, by God's grace, a lot of healthy days. But the strength of our marriage is not how we feel in the moment. It's not how much money's in the bank or not even how happy we are that day. The strength of our marriage is in the promises that we made and the person that we trust in the most. And his name is Jesus. question I have for everyone in this room, whether you are married or single, who are you depending on? Who are you trusting in for the strength to live life? If it's not Jesus, I don't know what else to tell you. He's the only one who can give you the strength for today and the hope for tomorrow. And if your marriage is struggling this morning, as long as Jesus Christ is alive and on the throne, there's hope. So I want everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here in this room or you're watching online and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if Jesus is missing in your heart, if he's missing in your life, if he's missing in your marriage, maybe today would be that day that you give your life to him. So I'm going to lead you into a prayer. This prayer will not save you, but faith in Jesus is what will save you. And today, if out of the cry of your heart, you would say to the Lord, a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've lived for myself. I've broken your word. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And today, I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. I put my faith and trust in you to forgive me of my sins and to save me. Lord Jesus, forgive me today. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.